A near-death experience set Ryan Dewey on a path of self-discovery. From the jungles of the Amazon, the serenity of float tanks, and ultimately the creation of $5,000 plunge baths. The product, it speaks for itself. Majority of the reviews have a statement about how this is changing their life. We identified around 20 people that we thought were highly influential in the health and wellness fitness space. We felt if we can get our product in their hands in a certain time frame, it'll feel like we're everywhere and kind of at the forefront with everyone. We have grown so quickly and it's awesome. That's the challenge every business owner, entrepreneur wants to have. I'm your host, Alex Freeman, and I'm here on the Upflip Podcast with the entrepreneur making cold plunges as common as your morning brew. Join us as we uncover the secrets behind plunges' success in creating and selling premium products. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. I loved that intro, man. Glad to be here. It was awesome. So to get things started, can you just share your story and how and when you started Plunge? Yeah, so the genesis of Plunge. I really actually trace it to when Mike and I first met. So Mike and I met in 2015. We were both opening brick and mortar float therapy spas in Northern California. He was opening in the Bay Area. I was opening in Sacramento. And, you know, it's very niche business. And I'd seen this guy opening it. And I was opening one. I was like, oh, I got to meet this guy. So I walked in right first month he had opened in San Francisco. I walked in and said, hey, we're going to be friends. And we became fast buds. We weren't business partners, but we just got really close and bounced a lot of business stuff off each other. Fast forward, 2020, pandemic. March, everything happens, March 2020, and our businesses are shut down. So it gave us this very unique moment in time. And Mike was the one that really initially ran with that into developing a cold plunge. And it started, this was a passion of ours. Like the question, how did I get into it? I first learned of cold plunging back in around probably 2014, like from an actual, in this way that we view it now. Of course, I was getting in ice baths and stuff back with sports and things like that, but it wasn't quite the perspective I have on it now. Anyways, learned of it through you know Wim Hof and the work that he was doing. So I was doing it super passionately. Same with Mike. Mike had the chest freezer. I was local rivers. I had I created a trade program with our business and a, a local business that had a cold plunge that was literally for me, for our employees, but I was in every day of the week. And so Mike starts developing this product. He comes to me and says, hey, do you want to create a business around this? We saw a gap in the market and you know, it took me a couple months to kind of see his iteration of the product. He's very product focused and saw the improvements. And that was really the genesis of it. We both loved it. We knew we had an email list from our float centers to be like, hey, the plan was we'll build 20 of these and we'll hand deliver to your homes. This is what we've been working on during the pandemic. Who's interested? And you know, from there, it was just taking those steps and then kind of the rest is history. I think the place I want to start following up there is with your experience starting with a co-founder where maybe previously you hadn't done that. What was the experience like of kind of starting the partnership and how did you know that it was going to be a fruitful partnership? That's why I always start with the story of when we first met because we met on the grounds of friendship and we built our friendship for five years. Little did we know we were building our business partnership. So there was never any intention of going into business together. We did a big fundraiser in 2018 for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. We did a fundraiser through Floating, national fundraiser to donate to MAPS. That was our first time really like working together, saw each other, how each other worked, really acknowledged, respected each other. So I say all that is when we finally committed to launching Plunge, it was you know, the fastest thing I've ever been a part of. It was like all the seeds have been planted and nurtured and total, like I didn't, I didn't have any doubts in his character and how he operated. I think the thing that we did potentially get 
like there was some luck involved that it just worked out so well was our skill sets. Like our skill sets, we didn't quite realize were very different into like we co-CEO the company. It's a very rare thing. I, I can't envision it doing anything else, but you know, it's very easily delineated. He's product, he's things, I'm people. And it buckets very simply throughout that. So, you know, for us as, as co-founders, I did it solo. It's definitely one of the most lonely journeys you can do. And there's, yeah, you get to make every decision, but at the scale that we're going at now, I can't imagine making every decision by myself. And I tip my cap to every CEO that doesn't have a co-CEO. And it's been instrumental. It's one of our superpowers with the company is how him and I run it. Now, for our listeners who are like, I've got a friend I could go into business with. You know, you mentioned the luck of your skill sets kind of delineating very perfectly for yourselves. I guess what advice can you offer for somebody that's like, got a friend that they think they can go into business with, how should they structure and build that business side of the relationship? Very clear in your roles, like find out what each other really loves to do. And then where there's crossover of what you both really love to do, like you need to create boundaries there. Like our crossover tends to come into marketing, a bit of design. So those are the worlds that there's usually a little give or take, or we'll have our pushback with each other. But we know that that's kind of where it comes up. Outside of that, it's, it's very, if I have a strong opinion, he's usually relinquishes and says, hey, run with that. I trust you. Vice versa. Above all, and again, the, the skill set thing can be worked out. But above all, do you trust the character and integrity? And I mean, like fully trust. Like there's not a 1% like, hey, is something going on that I'm not aware of? Like, is it, are you comfortable saying everything to each other? And if that's a yes, it's a really good potential for a good business partner. Now, I also want to ask about how your experience with the float business helped you as you got plunge started. How did that experience kind of prepare you to enter into the world of like actually building out and selling the equipment? I think from actual business learnings, not much. They are such different businesses. One's a service brick and mortar. One's a online product business. So very different like processes and, and, and systems in place. What I did learn opening the float center was one of the hardest things I've ever done. So just the endurance of like raising money and, and getting contractors and getting it across the finish line, knowing I can do it, I think, which doesn't have to be just from another business. Like you could, we could do hard things and learn our capabilities through many things. But that I think was number one. Number two, it's how we got our first customers. We emailed those businesses and said, hey, who wants to buy a cold plunge? And they were crossover type customers, people that are going to a float or they're into floating good chance they're into cold plunging as well. So, you know, I think that was like, it was an entry into to getting our first consumers. And secondly, it's like, they're worlds that I'm very passionate about. I'm passionate about health and wellness. Not just passionate, it's just my lifestyle. So I think that's been a big thing of like, it's not a trend that I get into and I'm like, oh, this is hot. I'm going to hop into this. It's like, no, I do this for a while. And I'm like, oh no, I love this. I want to get this out to more people. How do I do that? So I think that model from floating, carried over to plunge. And your entrepreneurial journey started with a near-death experience. Can you talk us through how that experience changed your mindset and kind of set you down the entrepreneurial path? That experience accelerated my life. And what I mean by that is I never quite viewed myself as like an entrepreneurial person. I think I was just more of like, if I wanted to go after something, I would go after it. But that brought me such to the forefront of like, where am I not going after something that I'm kind of kicking the can? I feel young. I could do this later on in life. 
And I think that was the laying in that hospital bed for the few weeks that I was, it was like, what do you want to do right now? Like, you know, just that beautiful shaken experience. It's like tomorrow is not given. This is truly, you know, it's like the momentum of life kind of gets woof, shaken from me. And so I think that was that. And for me, it was at the time, it wasn't even really starting a company. It was, I really wanted to go to the jungles of the Amazon and drink ayahuasca. Like this is back in 2012, 2013. I didn't know anyone that had done it. I had heard a couple people and I was so curious to go explore the depths of kind of myself. Like what is spirituality to me? Like who am I as a person? Like very deep questions. And that experience just seemed like such an adventure that I would do later in life. And it just was like, nope, I'm doing that now. And that was just one of the pieces upon this journey of entrepreneurship. Like going to the jungle, I thought I was going to go to the jungle and I was going to have this experience of like, you need to quit your job and you need to go start the float center. And it was the exact opposite. I get to the jungle, I was like, stop worrying about that. We have a lot of other things to be working on with yourself right now. And so went through that process. And then that ultimately sped me up to feel capable and feel confident enough to go launch my own company. I feel like it was more out of a mission. It was like there was like a selfishness of when I wanted to go start Capital Floats was one was I wanted to be around people that floated all the time. And I didn't quite have that network. So there was a total selfish purpose of like, man, I just want to be around these type of people. And I don't quite know how to do it. So maybe I just build a place that people come to, I can meet all these people. So there was total selfish and then selfless of like, this has changed my life, the practice of floating. How do I get this out to more people? And combined that, and that gave me the fuel to go off and do it. Listeners, if you're looking for more insights into how to develop and launch a product, check out the Upflip blog on product development, the ultimate guide where you'll find advice and insights from other product designers. Find the link to our blog in the show notes. Ryan, how would you describe the Plunge brand? Can you kind of give us the overview of the products you're selling and the problem they're solving for customers? Yeah, I think from a brand perspective, our mission is to make resilience mainstream. So it's our products. You know, we have our cold plunge lineup where you have the sauna coming out. Like both those products at the core are to help build resilience in us as humans. So that's like what a North Star is of any product that we're developing at the core. Is it solving for that? Secondary, the next biggest thing that we are solving is time. Lots of health and wellness modalities, but cold plunging, it is the best ROI on your time that you can find two to three minutes to go from how you feel prior to how you feel after. Our sauna, high heat sauna, they can crank up to 230. It's a 10 to 15 minute experience as opposed to a 60 and you know a number of other saunas. So we're really trying to solve that of like people that are high impact people that are living robust, fulfilled lives, How can they work in these modalities that fit into life and maximize it? So above all, building resilience, secondary, is this providing strong ROI on your time? What kind of research were you doing beforehand to kind of validate the ideas? And how did that information ultimately influence the design of the products? It's a great question. You know, research wise, the research was on ourselves. (laughs) We were, it was what we were doing. We felt incredible. It was like to this value prop of like time and how like ROI on our, like what we feel getting in. That was so clear. We're like, this is incredible. I don't quite know what's going on here. I don't know how to quantitatively or qualitatively say what's happening, but we felt it. We knew it was like a net positive in our life. So that was kind of the start. I think the design of the unit, we did have strong opinions and how that should be. We felt that this experience is you're manufacturing the fight or flight experience. That's the point of it. And that's very hard to do 
in the world. Usually fight or flight can only come in in unknown moments. Someone cutting you off, someone, you know, all of a sudden yelling at you or random moments that kind of trigger things. Well, the cold triggers the fight or flight. So we wanted an experience that you could actually learn to like relax into it. So it was really important that we had a tub that had some ergonomic dynamics to it. And that's bled into our sauna now. Our sauna is very unique into the back panel is at a 15 degree angle. So when you lay back, you can find some comfort there. So we wanted to create comfort in this like highly uncomfortable scenario. So those were like real big dynamics that we wanted. And we also wanted all of our products to look really like sleek and unique, you know, pieces that you feel confident and proud to put out in your backyard or they don't need to be hidden. So those were two dynamics that like, does it actually solve from a effective, like ergonomic standpoint and from a like aesthetically pleasing dynamic. And those were the two main things that we've, we've set out to instill in all our products. So then what's the, what does the design process look like to achieve those goals? It's developed over time. I mean, it started, the first one was really Mike and I in a garage, just like testing out, literally buying every bathtub that's existed, getting into it. Mike's six, six, I'm six foot. So we have different heights. Like how far should your knees bend? How far do we want to expose ourselves? Like what is the ultimate width? What is too much water? Really? It was just trial getting a ton of different units, testing them out. And that's developed over time as well. We've gotten a ton of feedback. We get, you know, as more and more units go out, we get more understanding from the consumer. The sauna design was a next step in that evolution. We actually brought a group of sauna designers into the fray with us. That was where Mike and I kind of were outside of the box, had a lot of crazy ideas, which they supported us in and equally kind of brought us back down to earth of like, that's just not feasible. But we ended up where our current sauna is at. It's a pretty revolutionary like design and engineering of how it's at an angle, how it's all tongue and groove, easy setup. That's been the design. And then our current, you know, we are evolving the plunge lineup. There will be new you know, evolutions of future generations of plunges. And that's a much more sophisticated with our engineering department, you know, as we've hired in that space to go through more industrial designers and, you know, more in-house design mock-up testing feedback. And then we kind of put it into production. To answer your question, started very like just Mike and I shooting ideas off. And then it's developed into we actually have a team that does this. And we have a process that's improved a lot over time. And then what are the differences between the consumer version of the plunge tub and the commercial version of the plunge tub? And I guess the immediate follow-up question there is, why have two different versions? The reason is it's mostly for volume of plungers. So like if it's at your house, the real need is like how quickly the water turns over and how cold can you keep the water? So humans are, we're warmer, we tend to heat the water up. So if it's at your house and it's just you and your wife or maybe a friend, it's like you only need our quarter horsepower chiller. That tends to work really, really well. The commercial unit, they all come with our one horsepower chiller. They all have a more robust pump. So the water turns over quicker. Really comes down to how much water can you push through the unit in a cycle. And that will speed up the cooling process and the cleaning process. So a more robust pump, moving more water through the unit. Let's say as opposed to 12 minute turnover, you get it down to 10 minutes. That improves the unit a lot. We have about 50% larger filter on the commercial. So just collects more dirt, more debris. The more debris, the more dirt you catch, the less the water flow decreases. And then we also have a hair trap on the commercial unit. Most people in commercial are getting in in bathing suits or after a workout, they might have lint from their clothing. That's one of the main factors of slowing the water down is lint and debris get caught into the pump. So we have a hair trap there that you don't need to drain it. It's a simple, you could close the valve off, pull the hair trap out, clean the lint out. And that's like a daily or weekly, depending on the volume. So it's just more tools to make it run better, longer, 
it adds a little more maintenance, but it just makes a more effective unit. In the residential unit, it's, you don't need much. You just need good filtration, ozone, and a pretty standard pump and chiller. And it works for most people. And obviously, in addition to the plunge tub and the sauna, there's also accessories and supplies to sell. Can you talk about the process of deciding, you know, which of those would be developed in-house, which would come from suppliers, and how you decided what specifically you wanted to be offering in addition to the main product? I wish we had more foresight into this. <laughs> when we so we, you know, we start selling the plunge. We were treating it at our house with hydrogen peroxide. That's how it started. And it was like, oh, this works for us. And well, not everyone's in California. Some people are in very humid environments. Some people are in, you know, different heating and temperate. And it just varies. Water temperature varies. So very quickly realized like, oh, we need to become water experts. So then we hired consultants into how to test water and, you know, bacteria levels. So that was an interesting journey for us into really understanding how the water needs to be treated. And from there, we've come up with our protocol. That's more of an overarching protocol. It obviously varies. A region could be a little different from the others, but the protocol that we have out on the website now works for everywhere. From a maintenance standpoint, we wanted to have options of whether it's a chlorine option or a non-chlorine option. It's important for our customer that they have that option. Some you know, especially in the commercial environment, prefer the chlorine. It helps. It's less probably water change that you would need, or water turnover. We created that protocol. It's been a great revenue structure too. We have a maintenance kit there. It's a subscription kit. Makes it really simple for the customer to get their filters, get the chemicals they need to treat it. And that goes out automatically every six months. And so it's just made for ultimately a better customer experience. And, you know, we've had to learn a lot with the commercial side too, because that volume is substantially different where, you know, a, a residential, maybe one to two plunges a day, we're getting commercial centers up to 50 to 60 plunges in one unit a day, totally different treatment of what they need for the water. So we've put out multiple protocols, multiple maintenance kits, depending on your use case. When you first launched the product, you talked about kind of sending those initial emails to your previous float clients. Can you talk now about how you go about attracting and connecting with kind of those high-end customers for the brand? It's evolved a lot over time. I could say what we have done in the past, we leaned heavily into influencer marketing, which has been a huge win. And it still is a massive part of our marketing budget, our team. We have people that actually just manage that side to the business. And so it's allowed, I just think that's the key for all this. People have built strong communities. You want to align with people that have similar values and have high integrity. So we go after those and that's been critical. Next, and everything from there, we've really moved from our influencer marketing. Everything starts with like a product trade. We've never gotten into a paid agreement without someone using and like loving our product first. Our product allows that. It allows us to get in front of a lot of people. It's a high price product. So we can get a very good deliverable to start from something. And we try and create a win-win scenario, like what's comfortable for them to do, what we feel good about, unit goes out. And then it really, the, the next step of creating like contracts and partnerships that allow us to go deeper in some of these communities happen very naturally. Like it's like, we love working together and we identify core groups that we want to go after. CrossFit had been a big focus for us for a couple of years, you know, have partners with Rich Froning, Noah Olson, Danny Spiegel, Mayhem, like some of these big groups that we've gone after. Also just trying referrals are such a massive part of our business. And so we invest heavily into our customer experience, an area that we're really trying to improve, make better from like even 
from down to the delivery, we include premium delivery on all of our orders. It's in the cost where FedEx shows up with a team of two, puts it in your house, goes up a flight of stairs if you need, takes away the pallet, and you're really just left with filling up with a hose and plugging it in, which is created you know, from start to finish. We like to think like a really good customer experience, and we're trying to improve it. That's an area that no matter what we do in the marketing world, it will never beat like someone getting a plunge and telling their friend that this was a great company to work with. I just, I love the product and they've done right by me. Those are two core areas that we focus on. So this is going to bring us to a section of a show that we call our Fan Blitz questions. These questions come from our YouTube community. Listeners, you can join that community by going to youtube.com slash upflip and post questions to future podcast guests. Ryan, I'm going to give you about five questions here. We're going to try and get through in about 90 seconds. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. First one coming from Riva Killa asking about a recent study that said cold water therapy is the worst thing for post-workout recovery. I guess I'm going to reframe that question with there's obviously a lot of constant studies and news in the health and wellness space. How do you deal with that kind of constant changing of advice? I think that every study, obviously, like you need to understand what the sample size was, what were they actually studying for? What does that actually mean? Like worst thing to do after a workout. I think that's pretty dramatic statement. And that is like a hot debate in the area, like plunging right after your workout. You want that inflammatory response when you're tearing your muscles down. That's the point. That's how we build strength and muscles in our system. Is cold plunging stunting that? There's an argument that it is. Does that mean you should plunge maybe two hours after your workout? Potentially. Or you could be doing it right before. That's become a big thing in the workout community, especially like our CrossFit athletes. They love it right before. It's almost like a pre-workout. However, I would say this. I have found, I know we got 90 seconds, but I'll be quick. I have found that people saying not to do it post-workout, it's been more of a world of almost an excuse not to do it. Dr. Kelly Starrett, one of our massive partners, his big thing is you get cold when you can get cold. We're almost overthinking it when it's we're concerned if it's after a workout. It's like, you're going to be able to work out more tomorrow. You are going to recover quicker. That will happen. So if you're long game, if you're playing for strengths, if you're Chris Bumstead and you're going for the world title, you might want to be pushing it four hours after your workout or doing it before. But if you're an everyday person, I think we're overthinking it. Yeah. AI Mobashir wants to know if they can resell your product on Amazon. No, we do not do resell on Amazon. Saying if you're reselling it as an individual in the marketplace, yes, but we do not do Amazon resell this time. If something were to happen to you, what happens to the business? Great question. Mike and I, we have a very clear operating agreement in how that goes down, that if something happened to him or vice versa to me, there are clear guidelines and structures in place to keep the business moving forward. Everything comes down to Mike and I have to decide on things together. And we have a clear structure if Mike, God forbid, had something to happen to him or vice versa. If you could sell your product to one celebrity, who would it be? Andrew Huberman would have been the name that I would have said, but Andrew does use our unit. So that's been like the ultimate win. The person that doesn't have one yet, The Rock. Great answer. Last one here in the family's questions. What are the unwritten rules of your workplace? Take care of your shit. Handle your work. We are very flexible. We have like a hybrid policy of in office, but it's, it's very loose. There's no micromanaging. <laughs> we are, for better or worse, kind of the opposite of that. And a new one that's come in that I'm kind of observing is it's everyone's starting to bring their dog to work. We don't have a rule around that. It seems to work fine and all the dogs get along, but that's just started over the last two months is this unwritten dog policy that seems to be dogs are allowed, which is fun to see. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Listeners, if you've been listening to the Upflip podcast for some time and you like our conversations with amazing entrepreneurs, business owners, and CEOs, you can help other aspiring entrepreneurs discover the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or rating our show in the Spotify app. You may also hear us read your review in one of the upcoming episodes. 
Ryan, it's obviously, it's an expensive product. How do you respond when customers say they can't afford it? Of course, it's a huge purchase for most people. It's a you know thought out purchase. I think for us, it's been a core feature to us is like we've wanted to price this. When we came out of the gate, we could have priced it at 10 grand because that was kind of what the market was calling for. And we were like, we actually weren't going to launch the business unless it was at five grand. Our goal is to create more cost-efficient coal plunges. And that comes with us improving the technology, getting more specific in the use case for them. So uh, my answer to that is in the short term, we're working really hard to create better financing options for people. 24, 36, 0% financing options. We are also working hard in the R&D to have more affordable units for people. So that's our long-term way to get more use case. And not just like pricing, but like you live in an apartment. Right now, our current unit doesn't quite fit for that. Can we build a unit that does work on inside, that's not noisy, that's a small footprint, that is affordable for that? So that's my answer there. I think there's a lot of ways to find affordability in getting cold. You know, whether that's finding a commercial location, a lot of those are popping up. You can get on a, a cheaper monthly membership. Cold showers, they work. Seasonality, you're, most of us are near a body of water in the wintertime or even spring and fall tend to work really well. So there are ways to get cold that are outside of just purchasing our unit. You also have a lot of customer reviews and testimonials on the site. What are you doing to encourage those positive reviews from customers? Obviously, email follow-up flows, you know, as we engage the customer after to see how it is. The product, it speaks for itself. Like you can read the reviews. I'm sure you've gone on. I mean, majority of the reviews have a statement about how this is changing their life. Our company motto is take the plunge, change your life. We didn't like sit in a war room and come up with that. It was literally like we just kept reading it all the time. This thing's changing my life. This thing's changing my life. And we just like said it one day and that's become the mantra. So the review, like people want to share about it. It's transformative. When we find things that matter and impact our lives positively, we want to talk about it. So the reviews have happened pretty straightforward, but we try and be proactive with them. You know, everyone gets a follow-up email asking them how their experience was. and They've been critical for the growth of the company. Let's talk about Shark Tank. What was the experience of being on Shark Tank and how did that ultimately impact the business? That was such a cool experience that came out of nowhere. They had reached out to us to ask us if we would be interested in applying. We were just in. We had company was probably one year old when we filmed that episode. I don't know. As an entrepreneur, it's like a kind of a dream come true, you know, walking out into the tank with Cuban and Robert and Lori and, you know, all of them and just kind of going out there. And they were all super cool, really supportive of the business. Awesome, like personal experience, first and foremost. For the business itself, we had gathered a lot of momentum so that we filmed in September of 21. It aired May of 22. So we we're pretty late in that season. We had developed a ton of momentum at that time. So it was really hard to tell like what Shark Tank did in the moment. Our web traffic went ballistic. It's a unique product to go on to Shark Tank. It's not an impulse purchase. It's not a, you know, a bag of chips that you so I'm gonna try it out. So it's, it's it was tough to tell. However, we still see about four to five percent of sales are attributed to that episode. People are like, I learned about you through Shark Tank, wow. which is massive. That is much larger than I would have thought when we went on. I would have thought we maybe would have had more like up front. But understanding how the show works, you know, you get the rerun every three months, massive on MSNBC. There's this whole community behind Shark Tank that write blogs about it and follow-up stories. And it's just, you know, their own personal bloggers and influencers in that category. So there's a ton of like SEO play on the back end. You know, I have only glowing things to say about Shark Tank, the production, and just the overall value from it. And then I want to ask a little bit more specifically about social media. I know you mentioned influencers kind of being important at the beginning of the company. You've built a solid presence, 165,000 plus followers on Instagram. How have you gone about building that following as a business? 
So early on, we created a list, what we called the entourage effect, and we identified around 20 people that we thought were highly influential in the health and wellness fitness space that we really respected and admired. We felt if we can get our product in their hands in a certain time frame, it'll feel like we're everywhere and kind of at the forefront with everyone. So that was like an initial campaign. Since then, we're very deliberate. Instagram's kind of our core platform. We're starting to really put more resources to YouTube. It's kind of our next frontier. You know, TikTok, we're utilizing it, LinkedIn, all platforms we use, but like Instagram's super focused. Like Mike and I dedicate meetings a week to the content that goes out there. We pick apart what we put out there. Maybe it's overkill, but like we're cutting out. That was a word that didn't need to go in there. Like we really care about what gets presented there. And we've brought people in now that can kind of see that vision and bring that forward. So we want value. And I think that's where we've grown. We've also been able to do, you know, giveaways work really, really well with our product. So aligning with the right people for giveaways and you can get follower increase through that. So it's been a bit of like just consistency. Like, okay, are we providing entertainment? Are we providing education? Are we providing like real value in this post? And then from there, it's, it's you know, we've had great kind of strategic partners throughout the way to have bigger jumps with the follower account. And now, you know, like I mentioned, we're going into new platforms and really trying to be deliberate there and improve the content we're putting out on other platforms. Now, one of the obviously things that's important about a product company is that it can be, you know, scaled. So what are those things that make a product company scalable and how have you built those into Plunge? So for us, I think it comes down to how we designed the product originally. You know, we don't white label this product, but we have a team of coming to 150,000 square feet of manufacturing facility. We build this unit. So I think a big differentiator from us to most everyone else in the cold plunge space that are more white labeled products, a couple things. It allows us to control the whole process. We can speed up our production. We can add more people to the line. We can do double shifts. The product itself, how it's designed, works very well in an assembly line. So it's a very streamlined process. That's It's more of we have a system in place that we can scale this product. And it's something we're very focused on right now into getting our lead time down and being a product that, you know, you purchase this, you're going to get it in less than a week. Right now we're at five weeks, which is just not where we want to be. To me, it comes down to the manufacturing side of the company and how we own that. That's not some outsourced third party that's doing that for us. So it's allowed us to move very quickly and control that whole process. How has the leadership team expanded as the company's grown? It's expanded substantially. Mike and I, we co-CEO it. We have a pretty substantial VP group now. As we've built out, you know, we're 150, 160 employees. Now we're building the levels of director level, manager level, VP level, and really getting clear into what departments are. We have our, you know, our manufacturing, supply chain, production, engineering, marketing, customer experience, like all these areas that, you know, now we're bringing in VP level people that have been there. That's our big focus right now is like hiring people for departments that you know, this is new to me. It's new to Mike. We haven't run a company of this size, but bringing in the people that have led teams of where we envision ourselves going. And it's been great. It's a big part of our culture is, you know, things can get testy and fiery and there's healthy disagreements. But at the end of the day, the best idea wins. And that goes for Mike and I. We have a meeting structure. We call it our L10. And it's basically all leadership gets in there. And it's really just nights of the round table and top idea wins out. I think we do a really good job of putting kind of ego to the side and what is best for the company. And that's gotten us this far and something we really want to, you know, make sure it's deep in our ethos and keep moving forward. Leadership is all bought in really, really well with that. And how do you go about finding and bringing into the company or elevating to leadership high quality talent? It's varied at different times. I mean, it depends the role that we're looking for. We're a company that's, you know, I think kind of 
out in the forefront. So people have reached out to us. We've hired some like pretty high level people, just not even through recruiters that have just maybe seen a posting, reached out and done it. We've also used recruiters and those have been very helpful for us. We are more of an in-office culture. So, you know, there's trade-offs to that, you know, being in the Sacramento region, we have to normally play with our talent pool in this region, or we're recruiting and having people, you know, we have to convince them and get them excited to move here, which is another, you know, challenge. We have a couple of people that are hybrid or more remote, but we've really leaned into that in-office culture. We've just grown so quickly that it's been important to actually have people in the office. You can walk over, talk to someone. And so, yeah, we, we've leaned into strong LinkedIn presence that has been really successful for us from a recruitment standpoint. I was a little skeptical there, but it's actually really good teams that we work with that help us get out there on the LinkedIn front. And that's we probably saved, I don't know how much money we've saved just through people organically reaching out. And then we do have a good recruiter base that has found us really good candidates. To me, that's important. They really start to understand our culture and they can streamline the process of who's going to be a good fit for us. What's been the most difficult part of growing Plunge and how did you overcome it? Really depends the quarter or the month or the week you're asking me. (laughs) You know, I think just for an overarching answer, it's growth. Like we have grown so quickly and it's awesome. That's the challenge every business owner, entrepreneur wants to have. And what worked last week doesn't work this week. Like that's sometimes the pace that we're moving. So it's like, how do I really look out on the horizon? Like, where are we going? And like customer support, okay, shoot, we're increasing our production numbers by 30% this month. We need to hire, like we need way more support agents to be able to be in place for that. I mean, we've doubled our staffing size in four months. So it's just that what comes with that HR being able to handle that and onboard people correctly, make people feel they're set up for success, you know, meeting structures. And are we having the right cadence? Are we meeting too much? Are we meeting too little? All these things are growth challenges. And I would say that's kind of overarching to the whole thing of like, and it just switches so quickly for myself. What the biggest challenge is, is how far out on the horizon can I like project us going and create the system that gets us there. And I feel like over time, I've been a little behind on creating the system more to not, you know, maybe underestimating the size of the market. It's a whole new market. It's like, is it really this big? Is it growing this quick? I don't want to get ahead of our skis. And so I think that has kind of been some roadblocks for us. How do you avoid, you know, decimating profit margins as revenue scales? How have you gone about doing that and kind of protecting the company that way? How has that worked for you? We have our growth side of marketing and we have our, you know, brand side to marketing. Growth side to marketing, to me, it's a very simple calculation. That's more, you have attribution, you know, our paid spend is very clear what ROAS is, what total CAC looks like. We can pull the levers that way. So we've been very controlled. We know what that number is and we've played that really, really well. Where I think as we grow, what we really need to monitor is the brand side which is super important for us, but there's less understanding into where that ROI is coming from. Like what was the ROI of doing this activation? There are certain ways to figure it out, but we don't quite know, you know? So I think it's just putting strong guardrails, I guess would be the word to be put in place. We're really focused into like fully embedded CAC. So we take in and we chart that. I mean, we are looking at that. It's really reported to leadership weekly, but we are seeing that daily. And that's, you know, every dollar that goes into selling cold plunge. And I'm talking every dollar from the commission to our sales team, to, you know, an influencer tub, to the dollar spent on Facebook, to an agency's dollar, everything embedded into that. And we know what our cost per unit is. So we just really monitor that. And, you know, if it's too low, that's telling me we're not doing enough. And obviously if we're getting too high, we're getting out of whack on there. So I think it's just strong attention to that total CAC. What would you say has been your smartest business move? Getting started. (laughs) Maybe not a sexy answer. 
we moved so quick to start. I think that we would have waited a year. We wouldn't have been really first to market the way that we did it. And I think early on, a really strong move that we did that I think was a little, you know, we had a lot of differing opinions on this, but you know, the company's name is Plunge. We bought the domain of thecoldplunge.com for a dollar when we started. No one had owned that key term. And like at the time, running back to 2020 is like ice bath was still this term that was still wasn't even in the zeitgeist, but it was like more the common term if you searched for it. Cold plunge was no one owned it. And we were like, we're going all in on this and we're going to make this the term that people use. Are we the sole reason for that? No, I don't think so. I think we just made a good bet on that key term. And because of that, we rank first in those categories. We've since bought plunge.com. We have a very strong domain. You can pay your way all the way to the top, but if you got to have some strong organic and if we would have waited another six months, who knows where things go. And I think getting that key term early on, we were first page ranking in Google our first month with no spend. So we were getting calls when we were in the garage of people in Florida, people in Arizona, like, hey, can I buy a cold plunge thinking we're this big company? I think those key decisions early on were massive. How do you keep yourself from burning out as the co-CEO of a growing company? That's a constantly evolving piece. I think I sleep. I've noticed probably 90% of my problems, if I go to bed, they tend to go away. Now, over time, I've built like a better structure around myself. I have trainers. I have you know people that are there to support me on my health, like kind of keep me in check. I have an incredible girlfriend. She's awesome to bounce ideas off of or keep me in check or kind of, you know, just someone I can share a lot with. I don't think it's like a silver bullet, but I think all of those kind of being a healthy ingredient in the process and is really helped over time. And I'm by no means like I have times that I feel burnt out. And the one thing I will add to this is like, if I feel like I'm working towards that, I get to go work on the things that I love that takes the weight of burnout away from me. Cause there are days that I'm like, I don't want to be doing this, which is fine. It's part of the process, but like, do I feel like I'm working towards the areas that I just love about the business. And if I feel like I'm getting closer to that, burnout seems further away. What's your favorite business book and why? I think I'm more business pods. Like I have a business pod in my ear all the time, whether it's just how I built this was so important for me when we first started this company. Like I listened to that every drive. I had like an hour 15 commute there and back. We were in this bike shop. I was listening to how I built this both ways every time. Just like, just feeling that early entrepreneur story, you know, my first millions become massive for me into uh, just, you know, the different types of businesses they're bringing on and discussing acquired, I think it's a great podcast into buying and selling businesses. Anyways, when I read, I tend to read historical fiction or just history books. It's kind of what I get into. So business has been more through audio. Ryan, where can people either connect with you or learn more about The Plunge? Plunge.com. Go to plunge.com. All things plunge related are there. For me personally, Ryan Dewey. Instagram, you can check me out, Ryan Dewey and plunge.com. That is going to do it for this episode of the Upflip Podcast. Listeners, if you liked this episode, make sure you check out the show notes for a link to episode 19, where we tell the story of Bunch Bikes and how Shark Tank helped them grow their revenue to $2.7 million. Don't forget to rate us in Apple Podcast and Spotify, and we'll see you next week. Ryan Dewey of Plunge. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Alex. This was fun. 